All right, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 170, The Welsh Cast, part six. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts of this show. If you're interested in supporting the British History Podcast and helping us bring history out of the Ivory Tower and out to anyone who wants to learn, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Sean, Yuri, and Nathaniel for signing up already. If you've been to the BritishHistoryPodcast.com lately, you might have noticed something new. There's a link at the top of the page to the BHP Swag Pack. I wanted to make stickers and buttons available worldwide, rather than just in the US. And I wanted just about everyone who wants them to have them. So I put together a swag pack where I'm selling them at no profit to the podcast and providing free shipping worldwide. So now you can have two bumper stickers, three iPhone size stickers, and three buttons for $10 US. And they'll get shipped to wherever you are at no added cost. Again, I'm not making any money off this, I just really wanted these to be out in the world. Largely because I think it would be really cool if you were out and saw one on the back of somebody else's car or laptop. History nerds are a rare breed. I say we fly our flag high and find each other. And apparently I'm not alone in this notion, since I just had to order more supplies because I've already run out, even though this is the first time I've mentioned it on the show. So, if you want to announce your geekiness to the world, just head over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and click the BHP Swag Pack. Alright, it's been over two years since we last checked in with the Britons of the West. And last time we spoke, a big part of our discussion was focused upon the people that Gildas hated which was pretty much everyone. Over the last two years, we've gotten to know the Anglo-Saxons. We know their motivations, their culture, their obsession with dinner parties, but we don't know much about the rest of the island. Throughout the podcast at this point, when we've talked about the Welsh, it was whenever the Anglo-Saxons were talking about them. And there are reasons for that. The first reason is that the BHP is split into three sections, with the main show, the Scott cast, and the Welsh cast. And I did that because the English heptarchy was complex enough without trying to link in the stories of Scotland and Wales. Especially considering that Wales and Scotland didn't always directly interact with the heptarchy. For a good portion of the Anglo-Saxon era, the English were mostly focused upon punching each other. So to combine Scotland and Wales in with that wouldn't add all that much to your understanding, but it definitely would confuse you at a time when you're probably just struggling to keep up with all the Aethels and Ozes. So that's reason number one. Reason number two is that it's hard. Really hard. Why? Well, because there aren't all that many written sources on Welsh history. That might sound strange to you, and I agree with you that it is. I mean, Wales was one of the last vestiges of Rome in the West. They were able to read and write back in those early days when the Anglo-Saxons were illiterate refugees living in pits in the ground. And that begs the question, why then are the written sources used by most historians coming out of England rather than Wales? Well, things change. The English learned how to read and write. But... That alone does not explain the emphasis placed upon Anglo-Saxon records. 
What does explain the weight that they carry is the fact that the Anglo-Saxon records were prized by a group of people who were so influential that they set the tone for over a century of historiographical thought. The Victorians. Yep, I'm banging this drum again. But stick with me, because no one talks about this in pop history. And it's actually a pretty nuanced explanation of what's happened in our history, and why we tell the stories in the ways that we do. I promise it's not just me tarring and feathering people who've been dead for over 100 years. It really is important. And to start with, I'd like to fess up to something. The Victorians weren't all bad. The interest they placed upon history and the re-examination that they took of history has benefited us all greatly. Much of the modern study of history finds its roots in their culture, and the fact that I've mentioned them so many times without repeating myself stands as a testament to their influence. They really did have an incredible impact, and so we have much to thank them for in that regard. However, they have much to answer for as well, because a good deal of their studies reflected the flaws within their own society and the attention they placed upon the Anglo-Saxon sources is an excellent example of that. The Victorian era was a period where the concept of Englishness as being unique and ideal was central to who they were. This makes sense, as Britain was deeply imperial at this point, and patriotic exceptionalism tends to pop up in cultures on an expansionist war footing. I mean, marching in, taking over countries, and seizing their stuff can raise questions if you see those people as your equal. But if England was the best, if it was Rome reborn but even better, well, then the superiority of the English would go a long way towards justifying their foreign adventures. So, their history needed to reflect that. To do anything less would run the risk of having to face some rather awkward self-examination. But if you had the keys to the kingdom the one true way, and an undeniable superiority, well, then it's your right, hell, it's your God-given duty to drag the rest of the world into the light, at sword point if needs be. The English and their past had to reflect the fact that they were the chosen. So you had serious historians discussing how the Anglo-Saxons weren't emotional, that they were deeply yet calmly political, they were enlightened, they were mature, and they were courageous. This is almost certainly because that's how the Victorians wanted to see themselves. And it went even farther than that. They were building a myth. A myth that would set the tone for the study of Britain for the next couple hundred years. A myth that said that the English were intrinsically different on an ethnic level, and that their forebears were just like the perfect Victorian gentleman just with fewer modern accessories, and that the British regions were unimportant and weak. Consequently, these historians went on to claim the English weren't just incredible. No, they were a separate race entirely. The famed Victorian historians Freeman and Green, for example, pushed the traditional belief that the Anglo-Saxons killed and displaced the British population. This was important because it not only established them as descendants of a victorious race, but it also made them different from the Celtic areas of Wales, Scotland, and Ireland. In fact, many of the Victorian writers wouldn't even accept that the Welsh and Irish were Celtic, and instead, they tried to give them new terms that implied that they were a separate race, claiming that they were Iberian, for example. The cause for this 
was frankly plain racism, since admitting the Welsh and Irish were Celtic would force the author to admit that the Welsh and the English shared a common Indo-European family connection. And the racial animosity of this period, as well as earlier periods, is well documented. The reason I point that out is because it looks like it played a role in their decisions of which sources to rely upon. While they were quite happy to look at the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the West Saxon Chronicle, and the writings of Gildas, who was Welsh, but whose writings confirmed the Victorian belief that the Welsh were degenerate and weak. Meanwhile, they largely ignored Nennius, the Welsh Annals, and others. And before you say, well, those sources aren't perfect, so they probably just didn't trust them. Let me remind you that the Anglo-Saxon sources talk about dragons, Woden, and all sorts of other stuff that makes them just as questionable. And as for Gildas, well, you know how loony that guy was. And yet many of the Victorian historians accepted the Anglo-Saxon sources while ignoring the British ones. What I'm getting at is they were pretty clearly picking favorites and building a myth. And unfortunately, they set the tone for the study of Britain for a very long time. Consequently, there aren't a ton of secondary sources regarding Wales and Scotland during the Middle Ages. Now, to be clear, there were some historians who pushed back against this, even some Victorians. However, the accounts that made it into our schools, and thus the accounts that set the national myth and also set the tone for study, was the pro-English and anti-everything-else story. And consequently, that's what's been perpetuated and has only recently started to be re-examined. But these myths are deep. People attach to what they learned in school, and they're reluctant to let go of it. For example, I'm about to say something that you will almost certainly have a visceral reaction to. Pluto is not a planet. The consensus is clear. It's not a planet. However... Because you learned in school that it was, you're almost certainly thinking to yourself, the hell it isn't. Pluto is and has always been a planet. And I feel ya. I want Pluto to be a planet as well. But why? Why do we even care? We're never going there. It doesn't affect us at all. But because we learned it in school, we're attached to the idea that it's a planet, and we don't like people messing with that belief. That's why the English national myth that was created all the way back in the 1800s is still going strong for a lot of people. It's a matter of faith. They learned it when they were kids, it was reinforced in school, and damn it, they're not going to abandon it now. And that's how you end up with nearly a couple hundred years of people speaking a load of nonsense about the inherent character of Englishness. There's not an inherent character of Englishness. So yeah... That's a long way of saying scholarship in this area is just starting to hit its stride thanks to being hamstrung by the Victorians. So this episode was hard to put together. That took a bit longer to explain than I thought it would, but knowing the context of where our information comes from and who decided what was emphasized and de-emphasized and why they did that is vitally important for unraveling the mystery of our past. This is not the first time we've spoken about the Victorian influence upon history, and it won't be the last either. Their effects were vast and far-reaching, and so I will continue to highlight it for you as it comes up. But for now, let's set them aside and focus upon the subject of this series, the Welsh. 
and throughout these episodes, I will be touching upon some events that you already heard about, but we'll be adding in new detail and highlighting things that mattered to the Britons living in the West. All right, let's get back to the era where Gildas was writing and ranting about the leaders of Wales. After all, that's roughly where we left off last time. For reference, the period we're talking about, which is roughly about 550, is about 50 years after the Battle of Mount Baden, where the Brits defeated the Anglo-Saxons and kicked them out. And according to legend, they were led by King Arthur. And now, in the 550s, we have King Ida ruling over Bernicia, and Chinerich, son of Churdich, ruling over Wessex. This is the time where most of the British kingdoms were still being led by the Brythonic aristocracies that Gildas hated. And those famous dynasties of the Anglo-Saxons that we've become so familiar with were being founded right now. And so you probably can guess what's coming next. Well, following Baden, the British kingdoms have been doing pretty well for a while. Looking at the Anglo-Saxon sources, we don't see much that would indicate that they were on the retreat. And by looking at place names, historian Kenneth Jackson makes the argument that the English kingdoms were still mostly bottled up in 550, and they hadn't yet spread beyond a line that stretched from Southampton to Scarborough. However, all of that changed after 550. The catastrophic reversal of fortunes that started at this point would ultimately shift the tide, and within a hundred years, it wouldn't be the Britons who controlled the East. It would be the Anglo-Saxons. And the writing was on the wall. The Britons' eastern neighbors, especially Wessex, were becoming increasingly problematic in the mid-500s. And starting at about 530, we see a resulting increase of emigration out of Wales. Much like their forebears had done a century earlier, it looks like the main destination was the Amorican Peninsula, otherwise known as Brittany, which translates to Little Britain. As they arrived, they brought their language and culture with them, which is why even to this day, the native language of Brittany, Breton, is a Brythonic language, and it can trace its roots back to the old British language. This mass migration actually went on for nearly 200 years. And it's understandable why. The southern and western British kingdoms had been pressed on their western borders by the Irish and the Picts. And now a newly resurgent Anglo-Saxon population was coming out of Wessex and pressing on their eastern borders. What had initially been a powerful and staunch resistance to the Anglo-Saxons prior to 550 had turned feeble. And when we look at what Gildas tells us, and what appears in the archaeological record, scattered British sources, and in the Anglo-Saxon sources, it does appear that the British kingdoms may have been suffering from a similar problem that the 9th century Anglo-Saxons are currently dealing with in the main show. Infighting, dynastic backstabbing, internal wars, and a few incompetent leaders. The flaws within their own culture how they organized their society and how they approached questions of leadership were coming back to haunt them. And it's entirely possible that the successes the Anglo-Saxons found were the result of cultural flaws within the British aristocracy and how their nobility was organized. I mean, just because many of the British kings appear to have been able to trace their lineage back to famous warriors like Ambrosius Aurelianus doesn't mean that they were destined to be great leaders themselves. Throughout history, we've seen cultures all over the globe make that same assumption. 
and suffer the consequences of it. But that appears to be what the Brits were doing in the 500s. Meanwhile, the smaller and frankly poorer societies of the Anglo-Saxons were being ruled by those who were the best and the most trusted of the group. You weren't selected by who your father was. You were selected if you could effectively lead. The conflicts that can arrive by having leaders chosen by birth rather than ability, and coming from dynasties that haven't seen battle or hard work for generations, was not yet an issue in Anglo-Saxon society. The Anglo-Saxons were farmers, with many of them living in literally pits in the ground. Their poverty and their early socially mobile culture allowed them to cut right past all that dynastic intrigue and just focus upon who and what was most effective. And it appears that they were able to exploit that advantage when, in 552, Salisbury was lost to King Chinnerich of the West Saxons. If there were Britons who believed that this was just the action of a single bloodthirsty monarch, those hopes were shattered in 571, when the new king of Wessex, King Chawlin, led his warriors into British territory and seized Aylesbury by force. It turns out that this wasn't the actions of one man. Now the Brits were seeing successive monarchs leading West Saxon warbands into the West and defeating the British kingdoms located there. There was a cultural shift that was occurring. The men of Wessex were on a rampage and were seizing large swaths of formerly British territory. The Anglo-Saxons, with their pagan gods, might have caused quite a few of the Brits to question whether or not they were backing the right horse. Other Britons, such as Gildas, might have looked at their leaders and placed the blame upon them for the British losses. After all, only 70 years earlier, it was the Britons who were triumphant on the field of battle, not these foreign pagans. Surely, it was their personal failings that must be the cause of this. Regardless of whose fault it was, things kept getting worse, and in 577, Chawlin and his West Saxon warriors killed three British kings at the Battle of Durham. And that was only about 12 kilometers from Bristol. And afterwards, the Brits lost Bath, Sirenster, and Gloucester. And actually, it was that victory that was the biggest problem for the Southern Welsh, and also a major boon for the men of Wessex because now the West Saxons had reached the Severn Sea. Up until that point, there was a contiguous British West. But now the Welsh Britons were cut off from the Cornish Britons by land. They could only reach each other via sea. And if they could be separated by that route as well, it would further press the West Saxon advantage. So what followed was a prolonged conflict over control of the northern and southern coasts of the Severn Sea. However, the Brits had the advantage there. The coasts, and the British warriors who lived there, were a substantial obstacle for the Anglo-Saxons. Tradition tells us that the men of Gwent pushed back against West Saxon advances. Similarly, Cornwall also fought to defend its territory. And actually, the Cornish were so successful in their defense that they would remain independent for at least another 300 years. But... It looks like it was getting pretty bad. Entry after entry in the Anglo-Saxon sources tell us of victories over the British. And anyone who can manage it, even Gildas, appears to have been packing up their stuff and heading across the channel. 
From about 550 to 580, the migration out of Wales had turned into a massive torrent. It was becoming clear that Britain was no longer safe for the Britons. And if we take Gildas at his word, those Britons were being exploited by tyrannical and incompetent leaders at home. And at the same time, across their borders, there were Germanic warriors who might lead an invasion into their lands in the next campaigning season. Gildas very well might have had a good reason to be so irate. And as a result, for the second time in just over a century, we're seeing large numbers of war refugees leaving Wales and traveling to their allies in Brittany. In just about 30 years, the Anglo-Saxons were able to make a serious foothold in southern Britain by taking advantage of the problems that often pop up in a dynastic system. And so, naturally, they emulated that dynastic system. Great job, guys. Next time, we'll discuss what was starting to kick up in the north. Because while the south was having a hell of a time of it, the north had developed a taste for the sons of Ida. Alright, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com and be sure to join all our communities. They're all fun, and you can find links to all of them at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Alright, thanks for listening.